All right, we take a look at the breastplate of righteousness tonight. How is the breastplate of righteousness used in our spiritual battles? Not good enough to know what a breastplate is. It's not good enough to know what righteousness is. We've got to know how to use it. And in order to learn that, we've got to find it in, in places and, and how it was used or how it was disarmed from people. So I spent a, a good bit of time trying to come up with some places for that. But first, we're going to take a look at some things on the belt of truth that we didn't finish up with last time. So again, our scripture here, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now we look on having girded your waist with truth. We spent some time looking at some people where the truth was taken away from them, or the truth stayed with them, and they remained in the battle and were standing because they hung on to the truth. So we looked at a number of different examples on those. Uh, Saul was one of those examples where he let go of what God had spoken to him. The unknown prophet was one who held on to what God spoke to him and the king gave him the invitation to come back home and he said no and he, so, he cited the word and that helped him but then when the old prophet came and said hey the angel appeared to me gave me a word and he believed it and he went on home and that's where the problem came in you have to hang on to the truth we know what the word of God teaches us we have to hang on to that truth but there's also truth that the spirit of the of truth will lead us into. And in John chapter 16 and verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. I'm not sure if I underline that one for you or not. When he, the spirit of truth, this is the same word for truth that is in Ephesians, and really, there are only two, two words for truth in here. Ale, aletheia is the one that we see the most common. The Spirit, in fact, it, it is extremely prominent. Just about any time you see the word truth, this is the one that you're, you're seeing. You'll see sometimes a word used for true, which is not truth, but it's more along the lines of sincere. But when you see the word truth, it is the Greek word aletheia, when you see the article put before it, or the put before it, it is speaking of the truth, which is the truth of God. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all, that is the word pas, we've talked about that before, that is all truth, whether you know about it or not, whether you can see it in a list, we looked at the one word that seems to have a little bit of a restriction on it, is looking at everything in a group, everything in a list, but this particular one is the word pas, and you, it can include things that you don't even know about. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The Amplified reads it this way, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, full and complete truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but will speak whatever he hears from the Father, the message regarding the Son, and he will disclose to you what is to come in the future. So this is the spirit of truth, and it says he will guide you. The word there for, for he will, I'm sorry, the word there for guide is the Greek word, I spelled it in the English, and I need to look over here at the Greek. I'm just trying to go with the English one. Odegeo. Odegeo. It means to show. There's a little bit of an H sound in the front there because of the breathing mark. It means to show the way, teach, instruct, guide, or lead. This is only used about five or seven times in the New Testament. I didn't write it down, but I believe it's only used about, about that many times. I wrote this in your outline for you. There are truths that are learned. There are truths that are observed. There are truths that are taught, and there are truths that are revealed. He can guide you into all these. 
Now, there are truths that, that you have learned and know, and I'm going to give you some examples, just cite you some examples on this so you can get a, a visual picture of this. With Jesus, the disciples were learning the parables. Jesus would teach them the parables. He came out and told them the parables. The first parable, he told them the parable of the sower. They didn't get it. And he said, you don't get this one. How are you going to get all the others? There was an expectation there that they would have gotten it just from him giving the parable. They didn't get it. He went through and explained it to them. So these are truths that they had learned or the truths that they would have come to know. Jesus expected them to come to know this truth when he spoke it. Since they didn't, he taught it to them so that they could learn it. There are truths that you recognize. These are truths that you see, and when you hear it, you recognize, ah, that is truth. How many times have you heard a particular minister of the gospel preach something, teach something, and as they're going, it's not something that you knew before, but as they're teaching it, you say, oh, yes, yes, it's agreeing with your spirit. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can re- you can recognize that as true. I didn't know it to be truth. I hadn't learned it to be true, but I can recognize it that this is truth. You'll see this in the example with the disciples when Jesus gave that message that drove many of his disciples away. And they, they had gone and Jesus turned to his twelve and he said, are you going to leave too? That was the one, uh, eat the flesh of my, eat my flesh, drink my blood, so forth. No one liked that one, so they were all leaving. He turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. So I don't understand what you just taught. I don't know what you just taught, but I can recognize that this is truth. So there's truth that we can just recognize as being truth. There are truths that are revealed. Uh, The disciples, you see this with Jesus is the Christ. He said, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet and so forth. Who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So there's this truth that was revealed. It wasn't taught. It wasn't something that was known. They didn't recognize it as somebody taught it. It was revealed to them in the Spirit, and they got this. And then there are truths you think you know. These are the ones that get you into trouble. And you'll see this with the disciples when they came to Jesus, and they had the man who was born, um, uh, I think he was born lame, uh, born blind, the man who was born blind. That was the one. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. They went under the assumption, and they thought they had the truth, that the sin of the parents or the sin of the child in the womb could cause a, a child to be born with a defect or to be born without something working. That was a truth they were operating under. And Jesus said, no, that's not true. That's not how this happened. And something we refer to every once in a while, the Jews thought that the spirit of, the, of a man or a spirit of a woman would stay around the grave until the fourth day. Fourth day would go on into in the heaven or Abraham's bosom. They thought that. That wasn't truth, but that's what they thought. So there are a lot of things that we can think are true, but they are not true. We see this in the natural realm. There were many people for uh, centuries who thought the earth was flat. And uh, they, they tested out and, and found out it's not flat. But the first one who came up and said it's not flat, uh, he was, uh, boy, he got a whole lot of flack for that one. The church came down on him. They burned his writings. Uh, did you ever hear how they proved that the earth wasn't flat? This was done way before, uh, you know, they had any kind of space technology, any kind of ability to get off the ground. The way that they proved that it was was ingenious, absolutely ingenious. When I saw this, I thought, oh yeah, that makes total sense. They went to two different places in the the world and uh, they recorded how long a shadow was of a tower at a particular time of the day and then they compared the notes. And so a tower in this area, I I forget where the, the two places were, but it was a substantial distance apart. The tower in this part had a long shadow. The tower in this part had a short shadow. Now the towers are the same height. At the same time of the day, if the earth was flat, the shadows should be the same. Because the shadows were not, 
it was proof that it wasn't. So what they did was they took a flat piece of paper and they put a piece of, of light, uh, a light out here and they had the two towers and the two places where they were in the world and they shine the light and the shadows are different. And they took the, the, uh, the stuff that the, the towers were on and they bent it. And as they bent it, the one shadow became smaller, the other one remained the same. Isn't that an ingenious way to prove that? You didn't have to get up in the air at all to, to prove it. But uh, still, people didn't want to do it. They wanted to accept it. They thought the earth was flat and they were going to rest on that. Thought they weren't going to have that, that truth be challenged. There are sometimes we have truths that are going to hinder us. Now, the Lord will let us alone on those truths until it comes to a point where he says, you have something coming up, that understanding you have will hinder you. And the spirit of truth will come to try and lead us into what is actually true about that. You have to be willing to let go of what you held on to and receive what God is speaking. If not, it will hinder you in your battle. When you fight that battle, you won't go in with the belt of truth. You'll go in with some kind of deception, something that is false. You will fall in that battle and you'll blame God. God, how did you let me fall in this battle? God says, I didn't let you fall. I sent you the truth and you refused it. You see this in the Old Testament. God sent his prophets with the truth. They refused it. He gave them light. They refused it. The Pharisees were given light through Jesus. They refused it. People after, after Jesus' time were given light through Paul and the apostles. and They refused it. So, he then says in this verse, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. If I am not on page to be able to accept or to hear what the Spirit of Truth tells me about truth, how do you think I'll do hearing what the Spirit of Truth says about the future? If I can't accept what is true current, how am I going to accept what is true that I can't even see yet? It is imperative that we yield to the spirit of truth when he leads us into truth because one of his functions is to lead us into uh, understanding of what's coming. And if I can't hear him on truth, I'm not going to hear him on what's coming. And if I don't hear him on what's coming, then I will be unprepared. One of the things that kept Jesus ahead of the enemy is he knew what was coming. He knew what they were going to do. He knew their thoughts before they gave voice to them. He knew their actions before they did them. He knew these things. That was something that the Spirit of God led Jesus in, and it was imperative in his spiritual battles to hear what the enemy was going to do to him. Old Testament, you remember the story of Elisha, when he would speak the very things that the king said in his bedchamber, was, it was said in the Scriptures. Uh, he said, all right, somebody, there's a traitor among us. Somebody around here has given the king of Israel the, the scoop on what we're doing. Oh, no, that's not what it is. Uh, they got Elisha down there. And Elisha down there, he's, he's speaking all kinds of things and he's letting people know what is going on. He's telling you the very secrets that you whisper in your bedchamber. And so, we, well, we need to get this guy out. And so they send a delegation down. I don't know how you think you're going to send a delegation down to a man who's telling the king what it is you're doing, your secret plans. You're going to make this secret plan. He's not going to hear about this one. Of course, he heard about it. He knew what was going on ahead of time, and he just dealt with it the way God said so, and uh, there was no problem. So there was spiritual warfare going on, but you see the same spirit of truth that's in the New Testament was the same spirit of truth that's in the Old Testament, and he told them things to come so that they could prepare for it. David had Saul coming after him, and he asked God questions. Will Saul do this? That's future. And the Spirit of God revealed it to him, he will. And so he was prepared for it. Part of how the belt of truth is going to work is you need to be revealed truth that you need now. You need to have false truths exposed and the real truth revealed. And then you need to have the truth of what is coming. And he will lead you in all these things. This is how the belt of truth will prepare you. We didn't get into that last week. I thought it would be real important that we, uh, that we cover those, those parts. But it says he will guide you. He will show you the way. He will teach you. He will instruct you. He will lead you. This is how he will, he will go through and do this. 
Let him do it. Let him bring you along in, in that way. All right, so let's go on here with with this. We finished up there with the truth. Of course, there's a whole lot more we could look on that. I could still take you through some other examples, but I hope your own mind is going through the Word of God and you're seeing, oh, they let go of the truth here in this battle, and that's why they fell. They held on to the truth in this battle. That's why they stood their ground. That's why things went well for them. They held their truth. They didn't let it go. When the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, when they were brought before the spiritual leaders, and they said, you will not teach in this name, and they said, you tell us, should we obey you or obey God? We're going to obey God. And they came through that battle just fine because they held on to the truth. They didn't let it go. So that's what we need to do. That's the first one. Having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the word here for put on, we took up the word take up. But this word here, put on, is different. This word put on and duo, I gave it to you there in the English. I, and I just copied it over from the Strong's in there and I don't know why they do this. I sometimes see this ahead of time and remove it, but for some reason they put a U as a Y. I don't know. Greek does not have a Y. But they keep putting that in there. Usually when I see it, I take it out and I put a U in there, but it's, uh, there is no Y in Greek. It is in duo. That is the, the word. It means to sink into clothing. Put on. Clothe oneself or array. Now, we already told you, take up means the purpose of which is used for, the, for Jesus, that he was taken up into heaven. You are to take up the whole armor of God. But now he's using this word because now that you have taken up the armor of God, and it's in your possession, so to speak. It's with you. Now you've got to literally go through and wrap yourself up, array yourself in what is the armor of God. Still not with the purpose of taking it off. This word put on is used 28 times in 26 verses in the New Testament. Here's a, here's a great one for you to see. I really want you to see this one. Matthew 22 and verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, I didn't give Daryl any of these verses. I'm just reading these things through. But in Matthew 22, 11, you want to write it down. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on, was not clothed with, was not arrayed in, or did not have on a wedding garment. He had gone in, did not put this wedding garment on. Everyone else had the wedding garment on. He did not. And because he didn't, he came into some problems. In Mark 15, 17, and verse 20, And they clothed him with purple, speaking of Jesus, and they twisted a crown of thorns put on his head. When they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off, put on his own clothes, and led him out to crucify him. In Acts 12, 21, So on, the, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. In Romans 13, 12, and 14, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So you are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something you are supposed to sink into. You are supposed to be arrayed with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. There's a lot of Christians that are arraying themselves with flesh. They are arraying themselves with things of this world. They arraign themselves with things so that the world looks upon them and is comfortable with them. You are not to do that. You are to put Jesus on. And the world is not going to like that. It's going to say, you look different. You are, And it's going to come against you for it. That's all right. You put that on. You get yourself arrayed in your Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you be concerned about what everybody else thinks about what you have on. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, 54. You all know this one real well. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality when you take on the nature that god has for you you put on incorruption and you put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory second corinthians 5 and verse 3 if indeed having been clothed we shall not be found naked that is talking about being clothed with the things of God. Ephesians 4.24 And that you put on the new man 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. No one talks about putting on and off the, the new man. You're supposed to put it on and leave it on. There are some Christians who put it on, then they go back to the old man. And Paul had some things to say about people who did that. You ought not to be doing that. Put on the new man, leave it on. Keep it going. You are the new man. Don't be going back there to the old person. Don't be going back there and, and being what that old, old man was like. Ephesians 6.11 also put it, put it that way. We've read that one before. Colossians 3.10 and 12 And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And have put on the new man. Verse 12 Therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You put them on as a Christian, are you ever supposed to take them off? We are not. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 One more I want you to see. Of all the ones that are in there, we're just, I just kind of picked out a few of them. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now there he calls the breastplate of faith and love. Now righteousness, very common word for righteousness. Righteousness, this is, uh, took me a while to find a really good definition that I like for this one. The condition acceptable to God. The condition acceptable to God. In a broad sense, it is the state of him who is as he ought to be, righteous, or righteousness, the condition acceptable to God. The state of him who is as he ought to be. You are to be righteous. God has called you to be righteous. He has made provision for us to be righteous. It is not something that I have to attain to. It is something that I receive. I receive His righteousness. And when I receive that, that's what I'm supposed to, to stay with. This is what the breastplate is. This word righteousness is used 92 times in 85 verses. I'm going to read a few of them here for you just so that you get a, a feel of it. Not as many as the last one, but um, this will be enough. In Matthew 5, 6, 10, and 20. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. You all know those that verse. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a righteousness that religious people can attain to, but our righteousness, in order to to be right standing with God must exceed that is what he's saying. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference. So if when you're looking at the breastplate of righteousness you are looking at a piece of the armor that is not righteousness attained through the law. It is not righteousness attained through man's religion. It is not righteousness that is attained through anything that you would do. It is the righteousness of God, which is righteousness that we receive. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. It's Christ's righteousness that we take on. It's His righteousness that I put on, that I wear. I wear what He brought about. It has nothing to do with me. And if I start in the righteous area, but then get pulled over to producing righteousness or becoming righteous through the law, then I'll fall into the same problem that the Galatian saints did and that Paul had to rebuke them for. How did you start out right? Get over here. Who bewitched you? Who took you off to the side from where you were supposed to be going? So this is referring to our right standing before God and our question then is, how can this be used in spiritual warfare? How do I use righteousness in the spiritual warfare? And so when I first was looking at this, I said, well, I don't know if I can find any examples of that. And it wasn't too long before I have more examples <laughs> than we're going to have time for. But once I've got through some of these, you'll be able to figure out the, the rest of them. Now, the enemy can deceive you, the belt of truth, and get you to pursue self-righteousness instead. That's the only blank I think I gave you. The enemy can deceive you if you don't have the belt of truth on 
the enemy can deceive you and get you to pursue self-righteousness instead. So if I fall into self-righteousness, if I fall into a righteousness for the law, as long as I do this, as long as I do that, as long as I accomplish these things, things like if, as long as I go to church on Sunday, as long as I don't cuss, as long as I'm not smoking or drinking, and I have all my rules, and as long as I do those things, then I'm righteous. Uh, no, our righteousness needs to exceed that, but I have let the belt of truth off so that deception can come in and I receive something that is different. But you know the belt of truth, as we looked at last week, is very, very, very much a part of the righteousness. It's holding it in place. If you let go of the belt of truth, your righteousness will fall apart because you will pursue a righteousness that is not of God, one that is of men, one that is of religion. And that will not have any protection for you in the things of God. Now the Pharisees fell for this, as did the parable, as the one in the parable, Jesus told about, remember the man who came to the altar and there was a sinner and he's beating his breast, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh, oh, thank you for saving a man like me. And here's the, the other one over here on this side, thank you for not making me like him. Oh, I'm glad I'm not like this guy over here. And, and Jesus didn't have great words to say about him because his righteousness, he was looking at himself as not needing a whole lot of fixing up. He was pretty good the way he was. And this man came to Jesus and said, Oh, just thank you for all that you have done for me in that one. So we know what Jesus feels about people who have righteousness based upon the things that they have done. So let's get into this. How is this used in the fight? Because it does me no good to know about the breastplate of the Romans. It does me no good to know that it's a breastplate of righteousness. It does me absolutely zero good if I cannot figure out how do I use the breastplate of righteousness in a fight. What is it supposed to do? How did it help? So I want to look at some people, and it's easier to find examples of people who failed than people who kept it up. <laughs> but we've got a few of them on. We've got more on the failed side because it's a whole lot easier to see them. But we've got a few on the successful side too, so you can see that one as, as well. When Jesus had the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Now Matthew actually... Chapter 18 is known as the forgiveness chapter. A lot of things going on about forgiveness, walking in forgiveness. But you remember the parable of the man who, who was uh, uh, forgiven a great debt. And the, the master had compassion on him and forgave him a great debt. And he went out and he found someone who owed him a little tiny debt. One day's wage as compared to millions of dollars. And he wouldn't forgive him. He said, no, no, you will pay me what you owe me. And uh, forgetting what it was he was just... Uh, received and so the servants around saw this and they reported it to the master and let him know and so the master called this servant back in and he says um, what's this I hear I forgave you that great debt and you went out and wouldn't forgive others so what happened to the forgiveness that he received he lost it it was revoked and what happened to the righteousness the right standing he had before the the, the uh, master there what happened to that it was gone up until then, he had right standing. He was in debt, but he still had right standing with the master. But then the master forgave him. He forgave him the debt, but it didn't change his right standing. He had right standing before the master before he was forgiven the debt because he could walk into the presence of the master and talk with him. And the master had compassion on him. You don't have compassion with people that you have a, a, an issue or a problem with. That doesn't... So he had right standing with the master before the event. He had right standing with the master after the event. When he went on out and he would not forgive his fellow servant, he comes back to the master and now he no longer has right standing with that master. He has lost it. And so that's going to affect him in the battles which he, he faces. Uh, and Jesus' teaching on unforgiveness being a hindrance in prayer. Well, we all know that prayer is something that's kind of important as far as uh, spiritual warfare is going on. <laughs> we need to be able to pray. And so, if, if we are having a problem in the area of, of unforgiveness, he tells Jesus here in Mark chapter 11, in fact, I'm going to read uh, 25 and 26 for you, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your, heaven, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. That's the same teaching he gave in Matthew 18. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. 
This will affect prayer. Brother Hagin used to teach us on this. He said, it's interesting that the only hindrance that the Lord Jesus ever taught about prayer was unforgiveness. Outside of doubt and unbelief, the only thing that he ever showed that there was a problem was this area of unforgiveness. Make sure that you walk in the area of forgiveness so that your prayers are not hindered. I think one of the best examples that you can see of this, though, we're not going to turn to it because the story is longer and it takes a while to get through, but here you're going to see both sides of the, of the issue. You're going to see the breastplate of righteousness functioning and the breastplate of righteousness not functioning. Don't get lost in the fact that this is Old Testament. The breastplate of righteousness was functioning in the Old Testament the same way it functioned in the New Testament. It didn't change. So, I don't believe I pulled any of the verses over from this, but it's a story that I think most people are familiar enough with, and you should be able to get it. If not, I gave you the reference in your outline. You can go back through and you can read it. And this is the story of Balaam. Balaam is hired to come in and to curse the Israelites because King Balak is afraid of them. And so he wants to engage in warfare against these, these people. So he thinks the best way to do it, that's tap into spiritual forces. And we have Balaam who can tap into spiritual forces. He was uh, considered a, a false prophet, but he was considered one who could touch into this, this, the forces of the Spirit. And so he took them up on a high mountain. And he says, look down upon them and, and curse them. And he looks down upon them and all he can do is bless them. Why is that? Is it because Israel was flawless in their walk with the Lord? We know that they weren't. They grumbled, they complained, they did all kinds of things about that. But, but they had a righteous element to them. And when someone spiritually tried to throw something at them, it bounced off. And instead of a blessing came, and the king's all mad. What did you do? I brought you in here to curse them, and now you've gone and blessed them. Well, let me take you up to another view. So he took him up to another, value, another view, and he looked at that. And uh, again, he set off to try and curse them, and out of his mouth came blessings. So the third time, he figured out, all right, God just wants to bless these people. So the third time, he just blessed them, and now the king's all mad, and he still wants to get paid. And so he begins to counsel the king and gives him teaching that is referred to in the book of Revelation, teaching of, ba of Balaam. That teaching was, if you can lure them into, in this particular case, it was sexual immorality, but it can, if you can lure them into things that the Word of God has told them to stay out of, that God's w will has said, don't get into this, then we'll have, um, we'll have success here. So if you send your women over to get the men and bring them over, get them involved in some of the feasts to your idols, uh, get them involved in, in, in the interest this way through the women, bring them on in, that this will work. And it did. It took Israel from a place where they didn't even know this was going on. Guys trying to curse them and it doesn't work. They're just going along, doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, now this, this comes in because we're going to try and pull you from your righteous area. Now, if they would have held on to the truth that God gave them, they wouldn't have had in trouble. But you see, they let go of the truth and now their righteous standing before the Father is, uh, is affected. And so this is a this is the thing that would, that happened. So it's, it's a great story, I think, because it shows you here's where it worked. Here's where it was removed. And here's where they became vulnerable. And that was nothing less than spiritual warfare in that. You can go on from that and you can also see that um, in the book of Joshua, when they came up against the city of Jericho, God gave them, this is what you were to do. He gave them the truth. And they walked according to that truth. They were silent, walked around the city. Seventh day, they walked around it. Uh, the, the, the last day, I'm sorry, they, they uh, walked around it seven times. And then they gave the shout and the walls came down. They went in and they took the city. And God said, now don't take anything out of the city. Everything in that city belongs to me. Don't take anything out of the city. So they didn't take anything out of the city except for the one, Achan. And then they went up to Ai. And they lost. Why'd they lose? Because somebody disobeyed the truth and they no longer, as a unit, had right standing before the Father. So they went into battle and lost. But they went into battle against a much greater city in Jericho and they won. That's where righteousness is, is once again involved. That one's not written down in your outline, but you can write that in there. Uh, here's one. We're just going to throw these out to you. 
Samson, when he fell from his Nazarite vow. We can look at all the things that Samson did and say, how in the world does God use this guy? But God did use him. But when he lost that Nazarite vow and he gave to the woman, you see, he knew what she was going to do with it. He knew what she was going to do. He gave it to her anyway. I mean, everything he had given before, she used it against him. I don't understand what he was trying to do. I'll have to wait till we get to heaven. I don't know if we can ask Samson. Maybe we can. Maybe we won't. But I'm sure there's somebody up there we can ask. What happened? <laughs> what was going on there? What was he thinking? But, <laughs> but his standing before the Father was affected. And so he was going to go up against his enemies like at other times, and he failed. Saul, when he fell into disobedience, he didn't hang on to the, to the part of truth, and his right standing before the Father was shaken. In fact, God even said, I've repented, I have remorse for making Saul king. I've rejected him. He is gone. He is done from my presence. I have looked out there for another. I'm going to find somebody else who will accomplish this. And so God did. David, after the sin of Bathsheba, after he had committed that sin with, with Bathsheba, this came to him in 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. Then Nathan said to David, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Because Nathan said, You are the man. You are the man of the story I just told. You took that little sheep and ate it up. And David said, that man shall die. And Nathan said, well, you're the man. I have sinned against the Lord. He said, the Lord has taken, uh, taken away your sin. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin, which means what? That you have once again have right standing before the Father. Because that's the difference between the righteous before God and the unrighteous. Is Not that we don't have any sin, it's that the sin has been, it's been removed. The Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan replied. You will not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, the son born to you will surely die. Now, I thought I had copied this down, but apparently I didn't get, to get enough of the verses. He also said to him, you have given an opportunity to the enemy. By you as the king not being in right standing with the Father to where he can use you and operate through you, you have created an opportunity for the enemy. Not an opportunity for God to judge them, an opportunity for the enemy. In spiritual warfare, your right standing before the Father helps in what the Father can do through you and what the enemy can do against you. You see that with Israel. When Balaam tried to curse them, the enemy couldn't do things again. They didn't even know what's going on. But the enemy couldn't do that because the righteousness was in place. The disciples, in Mark chapter 9, you remember that story, when they, the father brought the boy who had the epileptic seizures, and the disciples had been trying to cast out the demon, and they couldn't cast it out, and Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they saw Jesus, where Jesus saw them and all the commotion was going on, he says, what's happening here? What's going on? There was nine disciples down there. Three disciples were up with him, but the nine were down there. And they said, well, we, I brought my son because the, the spirit comes upon him. This, these seizures come upon him. And I think he just called them seizures, but the uh, disciples picked up that there was a spirit behind this and went after trying to cast it out. They were going in the right direction. And prior to this, they had come against spiritual forces and they had cast out demons in the name of Jesus and they had gone. But apparently in this one, they were not being successful and the demon spirit was staying. And so Jesus cast it out. He wasn't too happy about it. Remember Jesus' response? How long will I endure you? How long will I be with you? Bring him here to me. And so he cast out the demon spirit. But we know that while he was doing it, that the the boy thrashed around, and it looked like he was dead. So there was a show this spirit was doing. Now, if that's, they put on this show for Jesus. More than likely, they put on this show for the disciples. But it threw the disciples. It didn't throw Jesus. And so they came to Jesus later on, and they said, How come we couldn't cast out that demon? Now, you can go back to Mark chapter 9 and read all this to you. I'm just telling it to you. 
how come we couldn't cast out that demon? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. So what's the reason that they could not cast out the demon? Because of their unbelief. That is the reason. Jesus states it real clearly. Anybody who wants to come up with any other reason for why they couldn't cast out that demon is wrong because Jesus said, because of your unbelief. That is the answer. That is all the answer. He didn't say, and this. He said, because of your unbelief. So if they had gotten the unbelief out of the way, now where did that unbelief come from? They had cast out other demon spirits and they had gone. Well, apparently these were either demon spirits of a, of a greater quality or their, their hold was, I don't know what it was, but they had more of a show, more of a demonstration that was going on and it threw the disciples and they began to doubt. I've heard people in, in modern day, uh, our day, and they have given stories of sometimes when they've come after some of the demon spirits and some of the show that went on and it caused them to have doubt. So this can go on. This can happen. It caused them to have doubt. And so they, um, they somehow they doubted. Oh, wait a minute. This, we always did it this way and it worked. Why is it not working now? And so it, it, he says, because of your unbelief, that's why you couldn't cast it out. When he says this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting, He's not talking about the demon spirit because Jesus didn't come from a place of prayer and fasting. In fact, as far as we know, outside of the 40 days when he was in the wilderness, Jesus didn't fast because the Pharisees came to him and said, how come the disciples of John fast and our disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? And he said, well, while the bridegroom is, is there, we don't, we don't go fasting, we enjoy the feast. When the bridegroom leaves, they'll fast. So they apparently weren't fasting either. So Jesus came in there and he wasn't fasting. So if he hadn't been fasting, he didn't fast before this. He cannot be talking about fasting affecting the demon. There are no prayer and fasting demons. Demons are subject to the name of Jesus, and that's it. You don't need anything else. But they did something that caused them to think, wait a minute, it's not working. Something in me is not right, and they doubted. They began to doubt. It's not, it doesn't seem to be working here. Either something's wrong with me, Something's wrong with the name of Jesus. Who work. I don't know what their doubt was. He didn't say what their doubt was. He just said that doubt is your problem. That kind of doubt only comes out through prayer and fasting is what he said. So that's what they needed to, to pursue in order to accomplish that. So sometimes when we face a battle and we've, we've hit it this way before and all of a sudden it's not working the way that it was before, whether it be a demon spirit, whether it be uh, whatever, a sickness, illness, whatever it might be, we're facing it, we're battling exactly the same way before, but all of a sudden this one's not working, we can begin to doubt. And I'm wondering, well, maybe there's something wrong in my life. How many Christians have you ever heard that from? Well, you, maybe there's, there's something that you did, you just don't know about it yet, and that's why this thing is put upon you. If you have right standing before God, if you know that your breastplate is on, that belt of truth is there, we're holding this thing intact, we're holding this thing tight. We're not letting this thing go. Then that, that doesn't get through. You stand there. No, it will go. Remember that story that Brother Hagin told when he had told him about how to deal with demon spirits and he told him how to recognize. Now, he had a particular anointing that God said, when you operate in this way, uh, this, and he gave him the description. I don't want to get into the whole uh, bit of the story, but he gave him the description. When this happens, there's a demon spirit involved. And when it is, you just take authority over it and it will leave. That was his words. It will leave. And so he, uh, he laid hands on a particular gentleman for, for a situation. And he recognized, oh, this is a demon spirit. So he cast the demon spirit off and the demon spirit didn't seem to go. He was still hunched over. I believe this particular one was hunched over. And it threw him. And the man left still hunched over. And so he has, I forget, on this part, it's been too long since I heard the story. I don't know if this is a vision he had of God or if God was just dealing with him in the spirit. Um, but he's, he said, I told, he's telling God this. I told the spirit to go in the name of Jesus, but it didn't go. And Jesus, he said, got mad at him. That's why I think it uh, might have been a vision in there. Because and, and, he, he said, Jesus got mad at me. <laughs> he said, I told you that when you speak in the name of Jesus, that they will go. Yeah, but I said that and it didn't go. I told, God, real, real firm, I told you that if you use the name of Jesus, you speak the name of Jesus, 
that demon spirit will leave. And then he suddenly remembered that when he had laid hands on him, he cast the demon out. He said, see if you can stand up. So when he went and prayed over him again, he just told him, stand up. <laughs> stand up straight. And, and he realized that's where the problem is. Something came in and caused him to doubt. And that's what the problem is here with the disciples. Something came in and caused them to doubt. Now we can have that happen with us too. You know, I can have great faith for headaches. Headache comes in, glory to God, I've beaten this headache before. But then all of a sudden something else comes in. And, oh, I don't know. <laughs> we just kind of doubt a little bit. Of, I don't know if it'll work for me on, on this thing. And we just kind of doubt a little bit because I'm not sure about that right standing. You have that right standing on. That means you have the right standing before God that anything that you say to God, God hears. And if God hears it, He does it. They, uh, they didn't have that in place there. This is the, this story. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I don't often say this about, about this particular story. But um, there, was a, there was a message that I had on this one. And you could probably look it up. It's on the podcast. It's just called Sennacherib. And uh, to this day, I remember most of it. And it's still one of my favorite ones to preach to myself. Because sometimes you're just going to do that. I love this story for what it does. But I'm only going to read you a small part of it. You can go back to chapter 36 and 37 and read the rest of it. But here in the first 10 verses of Isaiah 36, and I'm reading from Isaiah. You can go to, I believe it's 2 Kings, and this is one place in the Bible that the writings of the prophet are identical to the writings of 2 Kings. In this particular case, 2 Kings. If you look up the exact same story in 2 Kings, you will see parts of the story are word for word exactly the same. But I think it's 2 Kings 18. 18, maybe 18, 19, but it's in that neck of the woods. 2 Kings does, does add some things to the story that we don't get in the prophets' writing, but a lot of it is identical. It's the same thing. But I'm reading from Isaiah. Isaiah 36. 1 through 10. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, might be first king. So it's either first kings or second kings. I, I forget which one it was that I was looking at. But King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now how many of y'all know it doesn't seem like it's working too well? Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish the king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you have trust, or which, in which you trust? I say you, ha you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. If you're... If you're Strength is an alliance. And when we spent more time on this, we showed you what this was referring to. I don't want to lose sight on, on all that. But uh, if you're trusting on an alliance with Pharaoh, with Egypt, he's saying he's going to hurt you. He's not going to come through for you. Verse 7, But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? He's calling into question. Now, the high places were a thorn in the flesh for Israel for a, for a long time. They had been brought in, and uh, as we've gone over the history before, the high places are not new places that Israel made. There are a lot of old, before Israel, high places, very well-known, very powerful high places that when Israel came, they went into disrepair. But they were still there. Some of them were destroyed to a degree. They would eventually rebuild them. But these were somewhat ancient high.
high places. And they were reenacting these things, especially when the idolatrous worship came into Judah and Israel. They were building these high places again, and they would go to these high places. Maybe they used them to worship God. Maybe they used them to worship the idols. It didn't matter. They were bringing these about. And God has always said, I don't want these high places going on. I don't want you using them. Jerusalem is my high place. I want you to go to Jerusalem. That's where we, we worship. And so ever since they brought them in, these things were a thorn in the flesh. And many times you'll see kings that came to Israel and they did good. And God said they, did, they followed the Lord. They obeyed him all their days. But the high places were not removed. You remember hearing about that? But the high places were not removed. The people till, still sacrificed on the high places. So whether they just sacrificed on the high places to God instead of the foreign gods or whether they continued to foreign God, that detail is not given to us. But Hezekiah comes through and he says, no, we're wiping out these high places. You are not going to worship there anymore. That is known. Again, these high places are ancient high places. They are not uh, Israeli um, high places. They were there before. So these people from these other gods knew of these high places and they knew they were going on again. Hezekiah has taken these things out. Aren't these the high places that uh, Hezekiah has taken that you used to worship God on? And you're going to tell me that God is who you're relying on? And you've taken, Hezekiah has, has offended him. He's taken away some of these high places. Well, you see, if they let go of the truth of God's word, which was, don't worship on these high places. If they took in the truth from the traditions, if they took in the truth from the way uh, things have been going on, well, we need to keep these high places going on. And if things aren't going right, it's probably because we stopped sacrificing to God on these high places. And so when he says this, they very much could swallow it if they don't have the belt of truth on it. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Jude in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you were able to, on your part, put riders on them. How then will you rebel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. So he's saying, God has sent me along to judge you. I didn't come up here without God. You can rely on Egypt, you're going to fail. You can rely on God, you're going to fail because God sent me here. He sent me here to judge you. And he began to cite examples. If you don't have that belt of truth on, if you don't know what God has said in his word, you could falter. You could give in on these things. And um, that's not something that needs to be done. Well, we go on in here and we find out that he had given a command to the people. He said, do not speak a word. Don't say a word. Hezekiah says this to the people. He's threatening them. He said, we're going to come in there and wipe you all out. And he says, don't say a word to them. He gave them some, uh, some truth that they, wait a minute, I, I, can, I can see where that, that could make sense. But he's, Hezekiah said, don't say a word. Don't speak a word. And the people didn't. They didn't say a word. They didn't speak a word. They stayed silent. And eventually... Uh, they went to the to the prophet. They had the letter before and they laid the letter before God of all the threats. They went to the prophet and said, uh, "Look, this is what God says." And God said, "I will fight for you. I am not. I did not send him." And he reassured them. And eventually, what happened was they got recalled to go back home because there was a problem. There was something they had to take care of. So they um, they. They, um, the, the guy came, he come back up to Israel, up to the wall, and he says, now look, don't you all let Hezekiah deceive you into thinking that your God has delivered you. We've got to go back on home. We've got to take care of a matter, but then we're coming back and we're, we're knocking you guys out. That's what the prophet said was going to happen. Here's some other ones we can throw out here too. I'm not going to read these over, but I gave you the reference if you want to read them over. In Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have uh, the, the church of Sardis. 
And in that passage, it talks about their garments are defiled. How many times in the Word of God does garments refer to your righteousness? The one in the wedding feast, you didn't have on the garment. You didn't have on that particular garment. You weren't clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're clothed with your own. And the Word of God says if we clothe ourselves with our own righteousness, it is as filthy rags, garments that are dirty. In Revelations 3, 14 through 22, Laodicea, he says, buy from me, and he gives him a, a few things to buy from him. One of them was the, the garments. Um, so one, one, one of them was gold. Buy gold that is pure. And the other one is buy white garments. Why well, white garments? Because this is garments of righteousness. This is righteousness that you can't attain to has been attained for you. Put on these garments. This is what's going to happen. So two times here, these are two of the churches that had issues. They were two of the churches that had problems, and it seems that part of their problem was the righteousness that they stood in. Because for these two churches, the garments were, were described. Two of the churches of the seven didn't have any problem. These two had problems, uh, more problems, just the garments, just the righteousness, but that is one thing that is, that is cited. Now, here's the part where you'll have a lot more writing to do, if you want. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you, and you can just write in as much as you uh, much as you want. The first three are kind of short. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you from self-righteousness. We're going to have six things all together if you want to space, spread out your thing. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you from self-righteousness because self-righteousness won't get you anything. It won't help you. It gives the appearance, like the Pharisee, gives the appearance of righteousness, but it has no effective uh, no effectiveness against spiritual warfare because when the enemy wanted to, to, to come and to kill Jesus he went right to the Pharisees and they accepted it they accepted they didn't fight that, that off at all because they had their own righteousness they didn't have the breastplate of righteousness on secondly the breastplate of righteousness keeps you from unforgiveness and unforgiveness will hinder you in many ways if you keep the breastplate of righteousness on, then you constantly realize what you were forgiven of, what you were restored from, and how much you need God. And if you stay mindful of the great debt that He forgave you for, when you run onto somebody who owes you a day's wage, you cannot help but forgive them. That's what the breastplate of righteousness will do. God's righteousness. Self-righteousness won't do that. If you're caught up in self-righteousness, well, I'm better than this one, so you better do this. That's not going to help you. Here's the third one. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you from unanswered prayers. If you're going to be involved in spiritual warfare, you better know how to pray to God, talk to God, and get answers. If you can't get answers to God in prayer, you're not going to do very well in spiritual warfare. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you from not acting of your own righteous stand founded in Jesus' works. I'm not standing, let me read this again, from not acting of your righteous stand, I'm not going to act on mine, I'm going to, I'm going to act on the one that is founded in the works of Jesus. Many people will stand in their battle based on what they have done. But God, I have been a Christian all my life, but God... I'm a tither. But God, I go to church every Sunday. But God, I read my Bible every day. But God, I'm a worshiper. But God, on this, we stand on our own works. But if you have the righteousness of, of God, if you have the, the breastplate of righteousness on, you know that me standing on that won't help out at, at all. I need to stand on the works of Jesus. And if I stand on the works of Jesus, the battle is going to be different. If the enemy can get you to stand on your own righteous works, what you have done, then when you come in the battle, all he has to do is pinpoint the fault with what you have done. And he will take you down on your stand. So he's going to try real hard to get you to stand on this and see the good in what you have done, the good in your works, so that when you are in the battle and you try and stand on that, he's going to shoot it to pieces. That's no good because look, how you were, look at what you were thinking. Look at how you were talking. Look at what you said. 
and he's going to shoot it to pieces. We've got to stand on the works of Jesus. Righteousness will do that and will help you in your battle. The breastplate of righteousness will keep me from being shaken will keep you from being shaken from your authority and right to use the name of Jesus. If the devil can shake you on your righteous stand before God, he can shake you out of your authority, he can shake you from the right to use the name of Jesus. I'll begin to call to mind. Remember those seven sons of Sceva? They tried to use the name of Jesus. It didn't work for them. They got beat up. Well, you're no better than they are. And if you try and use that in warfare, you're going to fail. No. I know my righteousness before God. I know I stand before Him. And I can take authority in the name of Jesus. Here's the last one. The breastplate of righteousness keeps you from thinking something is not working because of you. And the enemy is good at doing... He, he points to your faults. He points to all the things that you're doing that are not, are not right. Healing works for everybody else. It's not working for you because you have this and you have that and you have this going on. These people, are, they didn't have that, but you do. That's why it's not working for you. But if you have the breastplate of righteousness on, you understand it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what Jesus did. And you keep that breastplate of righteousness on. And the reason I can access what Jesus did is because of the righteousness that He gave me. When God sees me, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He does not see my righteousness. He does not see my works. He does not see my acts, good or bad. He sees what Jesus did. Because he sees what Jesus did, I can use the name of Jesus and the devil has no ability to do that. So when I make the stand, the devil will come against me. You can't do that because of this. Oh, yes, I can. Because I have the righteousness of God and I have that belt of truth on, the truth in his word of what he has taught me and I'm not being able to shake him from that. Spiritual warfare is against spiritual powers using people, thoughts, and natural things. We've said that before. Spiritual warfare is against spiritual powers using people, thoughts, and natural things. So I wrote down a couple of things about this. People acting up and the enemy sowing thoughts of offense resulting in unforgiveness. That can be one of these things that the devil will try and do. He'll get people in your life to act up. And then the enemy comes in and he sows thoughts Thoughts of offense, that's going to result in, un in unforgiveness, which is going to do what with the breastplate of righteousness? I first off let go of some truth, and then the breastplate of righteousness is affected. Here's another one. Natural things you don't understand, paving the way for thoughts, judging the motives of God or others, and bringing judgment upon me. There are natural things that go on. But I don't understand why that happened. I don't understand why it happened to these people. I don't understand why it happened to me. I don't think it should have happened to me. Something about it is not, I'm not understanding. And the devil sows thoughts into my head. He tells me, well, God just doesn't love you as much as other people. Well, those people, they did that to you, and this was their motive. Really? They did it because of that? Didn't you see that look in their eye when they did? Oh, my, yeah. And so I begin to judge the motives of people, but I don't know their motives. That's where people get into mistakes about judgment. I am not called to judge the motives of others unless they divulge what those motives are. If you come to me and I see you do something, why did you do that? Well, because I hate them. I can now judge your motive because you revealed what your motive was. But I can't go and say, well, the reason they did that is because they hate them. I don't know that. If I judge motives without, being, without coming to the brother or sister and talking to them about it and having those motives uh, divulged, if I judge motives, I'm wrong. But I can judge actions. That's why you see places in the Word, judge not, lest ye be judged. But also where Paul writes, 
For what, for what have we to do with judging those outside the church? Judge those inside the church and purge the evil from among yourselves. How many times is Paul judging the acts of the people in the churches where he started them? Because I can judge actions. I'm called to do that. If you see your brother in sin, how can you see your brother in sin if you made no judgment? I made a judgment. I see you in sin because I can judge your actions, but I cannot judge your motives. But you can reveal your motives to me. And once you reveal the motives, then I can judge them. We're called to be judges. So, natural things you don't understand pave the way for thoughts judging the motives of God or others and bring judgment upon me. That's a spiritual battle. The enemy's trying to get you to lose. Here's another one. People deceiving you into a wrong kind of righteousness as was done with the saints at Galatia. People. Remember he said, who bewitched you? People deceiving you into a wrong kind of righteousness as was done with the saints of Galatia. Here's the last one. Natural things that don't seem to listen to my authority in Jesus bringing me to question my righteous standing. When natural things don't seem to listen to my authority in Jesus. I expect them to listen. I have authority. Jesus took authority over this. The disciples took authority over this. The people in the book of Acts took authority over this. How come I can't seem to take authority over this? And it brings me into question my righteous standing before God. And my breastplate has been removed and I have become vulnerable to the enemy's attack. And you will not stand if you do not have the belt of truth girded about your waist and the breastplate of righteousness that you are clothed with, that you have put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's two of the pieces of armor. If you have them on, of course, the other ones have to be there too. It says, take up the whole armor of God. You have them on, you will stand. You take them off, you will not. This is how they, this is just some of the places where they're used. You can probably go through and figure out a whole lot more and begin to begin to see this breastplate of righteousness used and how much it is also teamed up with the belt of truth. Well, Father, we thank you for the breastplate of righteousness that protects us in our battles. The belt of truth that is girded about our waist, keeping everything in place and holding us to the truth of God's word, that we don't stray to the truth of what the enemy throws our way. And we know that we have right standing before the Father because of what Jesus did, but the enemy is always trying to get our thoughts get our mind going in a direction to see what we have done, that we would base our righteousness based on what we have done, and that God ought to see all the things we have done for his kingdom. Father, help us to keep the breastplate of righteousness on the righteousness that is the righteousness of God, not the righteousness that is the righteousness of men. For then we will be equipped to fight this spiritual battle, and then we can make a stand. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.